0: The Town of Tribulation and Straight on to do, Chapter 7. When we arrived at the Old Harbour on Thursday morning, I was disappointed to see that the Morning Star was deserted and that her tender was still tied to the pontoon. I also had a secret worry that now everything was in its place on board the Fiona, Grandma would feel that we would not need to visit as frequently as we had been doing. However, I think that she was enjoying Dotty's fame and felt obliged to put on the show for the people who came to watch the little cat swimming every day when Dotty was not performing for her audience grandma seemed content to sit and read in the sunshine or to cook bacon sandwiches in the galley. Although she would start the engine each day, she made no further attempts to sail anywhere, and my dreams of adventures on the high seas were fast disappearing. I just began to practice some of the trickier exercises found in Know Your Knots when boatboy Bob appeared at the side of the Fiona. Is it okay if the landlubber comes up the canal? He addressed his question to my grandmother, but knew that I would be the one who answered. Oh, Grandma, please, I begged, expecting a lecture about safety and staying where she could see me. Instead, she encouraged me to go and advised Bob to tie up further along the path where a metal ladder that ran from the path down to the water level would make it easier for me to get into the small rowing boat. Life jacket, she called after me as I was about to climb onto the path. When she was satisfied that buckles and straps were sufficiently tight, I made my way to the top of the ladder. I had seen boatboy Bob kneeling at the bow and paddling his small boat so easily as if it was a canoe and he was Hiawatha. Because he did it with such ease, it had never occurred to me that getting on board was far harder than it appeared. Looking down from the top of the ladder, I realised that I didn't know how to begin. Much to his amusement, I was about to find out. He kept the boat as steady as he could by holding on to the metal ladder, while I wobbled and teetered and tried very hard not to fall overboard. Stay in the centre and keep as low as you can, Bob said, with a mixture of panic and amusement in his voice. Finally, I managed to stop swaying like a seesaw and sat down heavily on the plank seat. Landlubber, he teased, trying to hide his laughter as I held tightly to the sides of the boat. We set off up the inner basin, past a rusting trawler and a clinker-built schooner and past the rowing club skiff. When we'd almost reached the swing bridge at the far end, we came alongside a large white motor yacht. It stood out against some of the ramshackle abandoned boats around it because it was much newer and much more expensive. The name, Don's Verse, was painted on the stern. As we approached, a woman appeared on deck and shouted, Keep your distance, teenage nuisances! I was shocked by her rudeness, as we were nowhere near her boat, and I was nowhere near being a teenager. Bob carried on rowing calmly, but when we'd passed under the swing bridge, he shook his head and said, Miss Danvers is the most horrible person I know. She's mean to everybody around her and thinks she owns the place. "'You used to think I was the most horrible person you knew,' I laughed, "'and Bob gave the paddle a little flick and splashed me with water. "'I was feeling much braver now and managed to let go of the side with one hand, "'dip it in the water and return the favour. "'We both laughed and I let out a loud squeal as the small boat rocked. "'This had the effect of bringing Miss Danvers on the deck again "'and before disappearing below she shouted, "'Hooligans!' In our direction, I covered my mouth to avoid bursting into laughter, and Bob rowed away at speed. That's not a proper boat anyhow, he muttered. It hasn't got sails. I forgot about Miss Danvers as soon as we passed under the bridge and into the disused canal. The bank on the left was steep, with a path running along the top. It was mainly used by dog walkers and visitors because it had the best view of the River Severn for miles around. However, from our place in the boat, it seemed as if we were in a deep-sided canyon with the bank on the left and tall reeds on the right. The water had a strange stillness to it. Bob's paddle hardly made ripples on its surface. Below us, the waterweed swayed gently backwards and forwards, and the only sound was a gentle rustling of the wind in the long grasses." A shout, loud and unexpected, startled me so that I caused the boat to rock again. "'Yo, Bob!' a voice from the top path hailed us. "'Is that your girlfriend?' Bob shaded his eyes with one hand and was able to make out two familiar figures against the skyline. "'No, it's my little sister,' he answered. "'Hello, Bob's sister,' said one of the boys.' I raised a hand in a sort of small wave, and without any further comment, the two boys disappeared out of view, down the other side of the top path, towards the rocks and the wrecked boats on the shoreline. Sorry about that, said Bob, when they were gone. That was Phil Rennie and Dave Higgins from my class. They're OK, but they can be tricky if you don't handle them properly. I could see that he obviously knew how to do that by not giving them the chance to tease or bully him about a girlfriend. "'I haven't seen them down here since the Easter holidays,' he continued. "'They got onto one of the abandoned boats and Miss Danvers called the police. "'They weren't doing anything wrong, "'but the police told them that they were trespassing and went to see their parents.' Phil's dad couldn't have cared less, but Dave was grounded for a week. The Danvers is not their favourite person. I decided there and then that I would avoid Miss Danvers whenever possible. A few hundred metres along the canal, we were confronted by a wall of tall, slender-leaved reeds, and the waterweed became so thick that Bob seemed to scoop up great clumps of it with each stroke of the oar. Time to turn back, he said, explaining that all the canal was like this until a few years ago, when money had been given to the old harbour so that part of it could be cleared. There's not much more of the canal. It finishes about half a mile further on, he said. It was built to link up with the railway when the old harbour was busy with all sorts of boats. Using the paddle on one side, he turned the boat in a semicircle. Our voices must have disturbed a swan whose nests were somewhere in the dense reeds ahead and it reared up, its wings outstretched and charged towards us. Cripe, said Bob, and paddled furiously. I looked back and saw that the magnificent bird, having defended its territory, had gone back to its nest. It was more eager to protect its young than to catch us. Passing under the swing bridge, he gave the Danvers a wide berth because he said, we've been shouted at enough for one day. Instead of taking me straight back to the Fiona, he tied up to the stern of the Morning Star and helped me onto the low bathing platform. As we climbed the ladder on her stern, I felt honoured that Bob had invited me onto his father's boat because I knew that this was his special place. With great pride, he gave me a tour of the boat, pointing out some of the things his father had added. The Morning Star was a much larger boat than the Fiona, and being modern had things that the old girl did not have. Down below, there were three large cabins and a galley that had a fridge and a full-size cooker. The heads had hot water and a shower, and in the saloon, there was a TV on the wall. On deck there were solar panels and a wind vane to generate electricity, a lazy jack to make hoisting the mainsail easier and a life raft was secured to the push pit at the stern. It soon became obvious how Bob spent his time on board as each line was hanging neatly coiled in a figure of eight. Even in the sail locker, spare lines hung from their hooks and sail bags were smartly lined up in order of size. I could not help thinking how Grandma was always in danger of getting lost in the clutter of our sail-locker. When I said as much, Bob looked at me sadly and said, ''But your boat is loved. Mine has been deserted.'' I could see that he was thinking about his father and how he had deserted not only his boat but also his family. ''Did your dad run far?'' I asked. Mine ran off when I was born and didn't stop running until he got to Australia. Grandma always calls him Derek the Departed. No, he said quietly, only as far as Somerset. I'm going to see him this weekend, but... His voice trailed away and he stretched out on the bench seat in the cockpit. I lay back on the seat on the other side and for a few minutes we said nothing as we watched small white clouds drifting across the deep blue sky. Suddenly, I remembered how I used to spend lazy afternoons with Ma, lying on the grass and finding animals and faces in the clouds above us. I pointed to a small wedge shaped cloud and another one that was behind it floating above us. Look, I said, there's the Fiona, closely followed by Morning Star. And I suppose that dark one over there is the Danvers. We both laughed for a moment. Bob forgot to be sad. A voice from the other side of the harbour called out, "'Time to go!' "'I won't be here tomorrow. I'm going to see Ma,' I told him as we made our way back to the metal ladder alongside the Fiona. "'See you on Monday then,' he said, and I watched as he took the tender over to the pontoon. Then, collecting his bicycle, he set off along the road alongside the canal towards his home.' That evening, I completed my log by adding details of everything that had happened that day. I drew a map of the old harbour, showing the mooring places of the Fiona, the Morning Star and the Danzeveur. I sketched the swing bridge and the canal beyond it, including the path where Bob's classmates had been walking, and showing how it led down to the rocks and the bank of the River Severn. On the opposite side of the canal, I drew the road that we travelled along to get to the old harbour. Finally, I marked the swan's nest in a shaded area that showed where the reeds were too thick to allow boats to go further. I wrote about my first trip in a rowing boat, and I would almost tipped it over. I described my meeting with the Danvers, and added a drawing of a sour face with a speech bubble that contained the words, I hate teenagers! i included a description of the morning star and how bob looked after her i did not mention how his father had run away because i knew that would make ma sad and remind her how my father had left us the following day she sat and read it from cover to cover while grandma and aunt hattie prepared our lunch she asked me questions about the people I'd met and smiled weakly when I told her about how Dotty had become famous and how many people came to watch her swim. I noticed that Ma ate very little, pushing most of her food into a pile at the edge of the plate so it would appear she'd eaten more than she had. It was the same trick that I use if I don't like something. After lunch, Aunt Hattie said that it was time for Ma to have a nap and so we kissed her goodbye and set off back to Grey Malkin Cottage. I sat in silence for the first part of the journey. I'd been so busy with everything that had happened at the old harbour that I'd not given much thought to anything else and now I felt selfish. Finally, I had to ask, Ma is very ill, isn't she, Grandma? No, Meg, she replied. She has been very ill, now she's going to get better. But we have to be patient because it will take time.